It has been a difficult year. Couple of years, really. And now, more than ever, it's time to make a year-end episode that really helps people put everything we've learned over the pandemic into perspective. The housing crisis, the desperate scramble to get vaccinated, followed by the baffling protest against getting vaccinated, extreme climate events, all of it. An episode like that would really revitalize people and give them the energy they need to face a brand new year, which is certain to bring its own slew of challenges. But I don't know how to do that. Are you kidding? <laughs> After the year that just happened? I'm just some guy. No, no, we're going to talk about cute little robots and why we don't like them. This is Spacing Radio. Broadcasting through a mild post-booster shot haze, I'm Glenn Bowerman and you're listening to the official podcast of Spacing Magazine. Coming up on the show, we talk to Stephen Dale, author of Shift Change, Scenes from a Post-Industrial Revolution, all about the gentrification of Hamilton, Ontario. And Spacing's new growth issue is out. Contributing editor Sarah Hood tells us what we can find in those pages. But first... Toronto City Council recently voted to temporarily ban micro-utility vehicles, robots or remote-controlled machines, from using sidewalks and bike lanes until next year and further study. That means no tiny pink robots with heart eyes delivering your work-from-home takeout lunch. Some people worry that we're standing in the way of innovation. But others, like journalist and culture writer Graham Isidore, think we need to go even further. Stand by. So, Graham, we're going to talk about these tiny little pink robots. They're called Jeffrey Bots. I wanted to know about the first time that you saw one actually out in the wild. Yeah, so I think the first time I had seen a Jeffrey robot out in the wild was maybe a year or two ago. Uh, it was in Toronto's East End, sort of the Queen and Broadview area. And at first, I didn't really know what I was looking at. I thought somebody was kind of playing with a toy or some sort of weird viral marketing going on. And in some senses, I think I was right about both of those things. But yeah, I, I Googled afterwards to see what these tiny mile robots were, the Jeffreys around, and then quickly found out that these are um, little delivery robots going around. So I, I think like a lot of people, I was really kind of amused and bewildered right away. And then when I found out what these are actually for, my opinion quickly shifted. Right. And that, that opinion shifted to something that you tweeted where you said we should, quote, smash these with a bat. I will go on record <laughs> saying that we should smash all the Jeffrey robots with a bat. For listeners, for a little bit of background, uh, Council recently debated these things and they, they decided to just push the pause button until the sort of second quarter of uh, next year. And they're going to do uh, they're going to try and test things out. Uh, they have things called, you know, a transportation innovation challenge where they invite people to sort of use exhibition place as a, a little technology rodeo, uh, as a, like a microcosm for the rest of the city. We're also waiting on provincial legislation where people can opt in to having these things in their municipalities. But for now, it's a no from city council. And uh, a lot of people were advocating for that. Yeah, um, I, I'm not a Luddite. I mean, I'm not against like uh, technological advancements of these things. But the the goal of the tiny robots or the tiny mile robots, the Jeffries, if you will, 
is to be able to deliver food across the city, right? So uh, there's a lot of different things that kind of come up with that. Uh, delivery workers in Toronto have pretty precarious jobs between Uber Eats, uh, Fedora before they got out of here. Uh, you know, we could go in at length of like how difficult those jobs can be for people. So the idea that we're going to outsource that to little robots around the city is already a little suspect to me on a lot of levels for many reasons. But uh, it's also uh, talking about like the, there's not enough space on the sidewalks a lot of the time for, for these things to go through. So now we have this thing where it's competing for jobs, uh, if not taking away jobs from different uh, service workers who are already in kind of precarious positions. It's taking up space on the sidewalk that is um, pretty precious for a lot of people walking around Toronto. This is a really car heavy city. Uh, and a lot of the times the sidewalks uh, can get pretty packed up and uh, we're doing it why like why are we letting this happen uh the, the immediately because these little things are, are are kind of cute because they're fun to look at because that they said the robot has you know non-binary pronouns which is hilarious because robots are, are pretty binary as is it's all zeros and ones right but yeah it's just like i i think that like a lot of people were really excited for these little robots around because they thought they were cute and something that you could post on instagram but like very quickly if you have like more than one of these in, uh, you know, your, your path when you're trying to walk, it becomes a problem. And like, that's what they want, right? They want these little tiny mile robots all over the city. So at what point does it stop just being like cute and start being a nuisance? Right. Well, the sidewalk issue is the first thing that I clocked when I saw one of these in my neighborhood in Moss Park, because, uh, it, it was around the same time where we were still battling early in the pandemic for extra space to social distance because, you know, sidewalks downtown, uh, especially in Toronto, can be so narrow that uh, there's hardly room for people, let alone little robots and, and other things. And if you have some kind of mobility device, you know, that that's a problem getting around. We're still a town with lots of hydro poles in the middle of sidewalks where other cities have buried them. So I, I can't imagine seceding any more of that very precious public space to what what's ultimately private interests yeah it's just like i'm not you know john connor fighting against the machines or anything like that but uh, i was just like why are we letting this happen in a way that's gonna like impact the city uh you know to me it makes it less walkable for private interests right and like we don't allow you know if someone is is biking on the sidewalk you think they're an asshole right like if someone has one of those like motorized scooters on the thing and people are immediately mad so why is why would we treat like robots any differently? Someone on Twitter in in trying to defend these robots was saying, you know, what, why isn't anyone mad about those A-frame real estate signs? Well, they are. They have been for years. And, you know, to to have one legally, you have to jump through a lot of hoops, but a lot of people I guess they figure it's it's easier to beg forgiveness than ask permission and and they are a problem and those are just signs. They don't move. Yeah. And when, when I say mobilized scooters, I don't mean people who are using those because, um, they need, uh, those to be able to get around. I, I mean, like the, the birds or the, yeah, the, the skateboard adjacent things, um, that people are kind of using, but yeah, it's just like, you know, we wouldn't let, we don't let people use those on the sidewalks or we're upset when people are using those on the sidewalks. We're upset when the A-frames come on things. And it was just like, I feel like all of this just happened because people thought these things were cute. And what I was really kind of like bewildered by and kind of angered by 
is the way that a lot of media institutions kind of treated the Jeffries and the Tiny Mile robots around. Um, it was just like all of the conversations that were happening around this were not about ideas of like, okay, who gets to have public space and who doesn't? What happens if there's going to be uh, dozens of these on the sidewalk at one time? It was all just kind of very uh, uh, human interesty um, article of the day type stuff. It was like, look at this cute little thing that happened. Uh, isn't it awesome that these robots are kind of coming into our life? And I'm like, no, why? Why would we not ask questions about like how these things are operating and what space they take up? Uh, and then, you know, the, a lot of the questions you'd throw kind of some softball, you know, newsy questions at the end of those articles talking about, okay, like, are these taking away jobs from people? And the conversation was always like, no, you know, we're hiring uh, local people to be able to, um, operate these uh tiny robots which are not auton autonomous at all they're they're actually um like basically rc cars right so they were saying that people uh early articles said that uh, people were going to get paid 25 dollars an hour to be able to operate those uh, and they were going to hire locally later in the toronto star it came out that tiny mile was recruiting folks in the philippines who according to those job postings were advertising a monthly salary of between 320 and 400 dollars so immediately, again, we're coming back to kind of like the precarious work of gig workers in this city that's now being outsourced, you know, to the Philippines for even less money for profits for these people. And everybody is just now saying, okay, uh, there's pushback against that. But really, like the narrative a lot of the time is like, look at these cute little robots we have on our sidewalks. Isn't it great? They have hard eyes and they're pink. And if, if the company uh, reaches its ultimate goal of truly uh, automating them, as I think is is their ultimate goal, then all those people who are already precariously employed are just going to be out of a job anyway. Yeah, totally. I mean, like the as best as I understand, the the team behind Tiny Mile actually came from Uber and the self driving car division. So it, you know, it becomes pretty clear that uh, self driving cars uh, are a pretty far away um, pipe dream for Uber to be able to do. But like, if the business model is like we have no people in these. Or we have one person overseeing, uh, you know, dozens of these different robots that are going around your city. I was like, is that good? You know, I'm not against technology, but the question becomes is like, do we need to do that? And we're just letting people do that on these streets without any kind of oversight or thought of like who this is impacting and who it's helping or who it's taking away from. And who it seems to be taking away from to me are some of the people who are like most precariously employed in this city. In addition to that, uh, kind of uh, messing up my walk on the way to work or on the way to the gym in the day. You mentioned when you first saw one of these things that you, you felt like it, it was part of some ad campaign and that, you know, ultimately it is. Let's unpack that. And we're, we're maybe biting Canada, Canada land style a little bit, but like all that glowing coverage, I mean, BlogTO, McLean, CBC, we, we both know how that happens, right? Like a, it's a slow news week, a press release comes out and, and maybe just not a lot of thought goes into the ultimate implications, but, but they see that like, yeah, this, this has the capacity to become a viral sensation. And, and I'm certain that that was the point from the beginning. Yeah, certainly. But I was just like, you know, uh, if we don't question kind of like the marketing around it is smart, like I'll give them that for sure. Right. Like, yeah, of course, if these things look cute, people are going to be more into them, but yeah, it's just like when I say smash it with a bat, I mean, smash it with a bat. I, I, I hate these <laughs> stupid things. And I also kind of hate that, like, we all kind of just fall for this this thing. I'm like, oh, this is going to cause problems in our city and it's going to impact real people's lives. But we don't really care about that because the thing has hard eyes, right? So it's just like, 
I sit there and I got so angry at the media coverage a lot of the time because it's just like, I, I understand why that thing goes viral. And I understand that like the different aspect of that in the city and just like, uh, you know, seeing something that, um, you know, looks like this little R2D2 guy, like running around the city, uh, initially is going to spark a reaction for sure. I think what, what Jeffrey and, and a lot of these sort of disruptor in quotations companies kind of play against is Toronto and, and a lot of municipalities, they often have a reputation of like no fun, no imagination. It's a city of no. And certainly like me following this city for years, I, I've come up against that myself where sometimes I, I do think that we can be a little too slow. Uh, we can lack a little bit of imagination, but also that idea is sort of exploited by, by disruptor companies because they can move so much faster than we can regulate. And so they'll come in and they'll capture people's imaginations without us fully understanding the implications down the road. And then well, finally, when, when a municipal government, you know, catches wise and says, Hey, m maybe we should not lose all our possible rental houses to these sort of hotels or, you know, maybe we shouldn't totally undermine the transit in this city by flooding the streets with Uber cars. It's too late. And then the companies go, well, either you let us do whatever we want or we take our ball home and no one can play. Yeah. I mean, like it's a lot of co-opting uh, language and co-opting ideas from art scenes and from things that are you know, quote unquote, cool in the city. Right. Like I was just like, I, I think Toronto gets a reputation as being no fun. Rightly so. A lot of the time, like I'm angry that, you know, uh, all of my favorite venues closed or when, uh, people try to put on a, a show, it immediately gets hit with noise complaints, but that's not the same as like an RC car that is stealing people's jobs. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like mm -hmm. I was just like, Oh, you guys, yeah, you guys are no fun. You don't like to do anything. Well, you won't let us have an RC car uh, that's going to steal people's jobs. We painted it pink and like, it's the future. You don't want the future. And I was just like, no, I, I was just like, not like that. You know, I was like, why do you get to decide that? And yeah, I was just like, if they could get to take up my space, I should get to hit them with a the bat for these robots. Well, I mean, like, yeah, talking about co-opting art scenes, I, I think a lot of these companies, they sort of co-opt a punk rock mentality. But uh, you can't be punk rock while you're also, you know, getting venture capitalist investments like angel investors, that kind of thing, raking in millions of dollars and not paying people. That's That doesn't strike me as especially punk rock. I mean, you've been in the punk rock scene for, for years covering it. Yeah, I mean, like, it's, uh, it's always one of these things. Like, listen, the only reason I've ever gotten paid by anybody for any of my writing on a corporate level has because they want some sort of weird notion of edge that they have about me because I worked at Vice or because I listened to loud, angry bands. And that kind of, like, language and that kind of um, disruptor and that kind of, like, uh, innovative things of being like, hey, we're, we're, we're not like everybody else. We're, we're, like, throwing over the system. And I was just like... You guys are, you know, are trying to make millions and millions and millions of dollars right now, right? Like, if your goal is to kind of like, oh, is it punk rock to steal jobs from people? Like, go listen to Billy Bragg. Like, it's just like, it, we're, we're sitting here, we're like, that's not what we're trying to do here, right? Like, when we think about kind of a, a city that we want to create and uh, what we want for this city, like, I'm not against tech, I'm not against innovation, I'm not against any of these things. I am against a bunch of people imposing their uh, idea of the future on me without me getting to um, really consider what that means, right? Now I just have to deal with these robots the whole time. No. Well, Graham, uh, you know, 
maybe maybe we come off as a couple of Grinches, but I'm happy we had this discussion. Uh, would you like to point people to your work? Uh, it's fine. You can find me on Twitter if you want. <laughs> What's that handle? Uh, it's uh, Press Gang with one uh, one S. All right. Well, happy holidays, buddy. <laughs> yeah, you too, man. For legal purposes, let me just stress spacing does not endorse hitting robots with bats, as the robots will simply adapt. Now, over the years, Hamilton, Ontario has been absorbing many Torontonians fleeing the city in search of cheaper rents in the face of a housing crisis. However, as is so often the case, this migration can cause displacement of Hamilton's long-term, often low-income residents and drive rents up there instead. Author Stephen Dale has written a book about this process called Shift Change, which details Hamilton's history as an industrial powerhouse, its decline, and this new chapter of rapid gentrification and rising rents. Okay, Stephen, first I wanted to ask you, what was the impetus for this book, Shift Change? Well, I'm from Hamilton, and I've observed some of the changes over the years. I I left in the early 1980s. And when I left Hamilton, first of all, for Woodstock, Ontario, for a short period of time, but then Toronto, there were a lot of changes happening in Toronto. The Queen Street West screen scene was happening. And, you know, I left a really boring place. So I thought for a city where, you know, there was a cultural renaissance underway, things were happening. Many, many years later, I, I look at Hamilton and I see, well, history is repeating itself. You know, the excitement around the art scene that happened in Toronto had led to this massive rise in housing prices and all this, you know, excitement, which translates as prices that people can't afford. And then this rejuvenation process is happening, starting up again in in Hamilton, the, the city that I had, had left in a, a number of decades earlier. Uh, so I was curious to see, um, you know, if what was happening in Hamilton was going to play out according to the standard script, you know, the, the gentrification narrative that had unfolded in countless other cities across North America, or if there was a possibility for some variation on the normal themes. And uh, yeah, that curiosity, I think, is, is what drove me to start researching and then, and then write Shift Change. What I find fascinating about this book and the story of Hamilton right now is, uh, much like Winnipeg, you could say, uh, it's one of the few major cities in, in Canada where the development of the downtown and the sort of bounce back from the quote unquote white flight of that we saw in sort of the post war period, it hasn't totally happened yet, but it is happening. And, and I think it seems like, what you're addressing in the book is is a chance to maybe not make some of the mistakes that, uh, say, a Toronto has. Yes, exactly. It's very much a work in progress. I suppose that's the case for all cities in a way. But, you know, as things progress along a certain road, like the, the opportunities become fewer and the chance to experiment and to forge new paths and uh, you know, see what can develop along sort of non-standard lines. Those things all become closed up. Uh, and in Hamilton, that's that's not the case yet. Although there's been, you know, a really amazing uh, rise in property values, which um, 
just over the past few years. It's something that a few of the people that I interviewed for the book, when I first started interviewing people in about 2015, they were saying, no, this is not going to happen, that uh, there's only a very small portion of Hamilton which has direct transit access to Toronto, which is seeing this inflation of prices. Uh, it's not going to happen. There's plenty of space in the rest of Hamilton. You know, that totally turned around. The market went totally mad in just a few short years after that. So that's foreclosed on a lot of opportunities. And it's meant that a lot of people who did have a small window of opportunity to be able to afford, say, a house of their own, especially people like artists, you know, people looking for studio space or space to conduct some kind of creative endeavor. You know, those opportunities are no longer there. But there are still opportunities, I think, at an institutional level, like when we're looking at things like building affordable housing. There's still a lot of land there. A lot of it's in public hands. There are community organizations that have particular expertise in building mixed-income communities or communities geared towards uh, housing developments, geared towards low-income people. And, you know, the amount of land that's still open in Hamilton or is very low density and could be higher density, that means there's still the opportunity for projects to get underway, which would change the character of of the city of Hamilton, you know, back into a mixed income community where there is sort of a more egalitarian a society and more opportunities for people at all economic and social levels. Right. I, I mean, when we talk about things like gentrification, it it can kind of ruffle some feathers because it, depending on the way you phrase it, it, it tends to pit one group of people against the next. You sort of paint a, a full picture where gentrification, it's it's about how you do it and it's about how you absorb that, that growth. And, and you do offer um, some examples of of sustainable ways and ways that don't displace the original inhabitants who, as you say, are working class from a time when the city was a, a sort of manufacturing hub. Yeah, I, I mean, to be clear, a lot of people have accused me, I wouldn't say it's an accusation, but reviews have come out saying, well, you know, this is a an unrealistically optimistic portrait that emerges in shift change. And I mean, if you look at the current situation, there's been you know, waves of people being displaced as prices have gone up and people have moved from places like Toronto. And there's been a real incentive for landlords, for instance, to to get people out of buildings because of the opportunity to charge a lot more in rent for people, uh, you know, especially as the community takes on this sort of new identity as being a, an arts hub. So, I mean, at the moment, I would say the situation looks pretty bleak especially if you're a person trying to survive on a low income and finding a decent place to live and trying to secure your spot in this community where you have you know access to all the things that that you need i mean it's not it's not looking particularly good at this point in time but hopefully the continuum will you know things will shift in a way i mean the, the book starts out by talking with a number of people who speak about the ideal of a mixed income community and how for people on lower incomes, you know, having a diverse range of people. I mean, Hamilton got into the situation in the 1980s when people were being driven out of Toronto because of rising prices and new suburbs that were being built 
in communities across Ontario were uniformly affluent. There was no affordable housing being built. So what happened, a lot of people moved into Hamilton at the time where this long process, which had been in work since the 1950s of people moving out of the inner city into suburban areas where that had accelerated. And it was even more magnified by the fact that industries were closing down. So property values were more depressed. And a lot of people who were on disability, for instance, or people who just generally had a very low income, uh, relying on social services, came to Hamilton. And, um, you know, a lot of people were saying that that's, that's not a good thing at all. And it was reflected in a lot of pretty, pretty grim statistics about health outcomes in many communities in downtown Hamilton. I mean, that, that can sort of be turned around when you have people who have more disposable income moving into a community you have more social opportunities for everybody. You have more economic opportunities. Businesses spring up and, you know, they create employment opportunities and there's a bigger tax base and the city invests more in terms of services in the downtown and so forth. So, I mean, that's something that hopefully, despite being in a situation now where people who have a low income are being driven out of Hamilton or driven onto the streets or into the parks, you know, hopefully at some point we can get back to that that vision of a community where there's housing for people at different levels, where there's opportunity for people at different levels of income, and where there's interaction between people who come from different backgrounds and have, you know, traditionally you know, identified with a different economic and social strata in society. I mean, that's uh, that's hopefully something that can be revived at some point. Including age demographics. I mean, you, you write about how Hamilton, the central Hamilton kind of has an opportunity to be a hub for Canada's aging population because of the density where if there were services in place, they would maybe be able to age in place rather than making the tough decision of, of going into a, a long-term care facility, uh, maybe years before they actually really need to. Yeah, that's exactly right. And that's an idea that's put forth by uh, Jim Dunn, who is a professor, I believe a professor of geography at McMaster, although that eludes me right now with particular interest in, in epidemiology. Yeah, and he says that uh, the GTA or the GTHA, as it is now, is going to be facing a crisis because there are going to be so many people uh, living in areas like Scarborough, Etobicoke, you know, the, the northern suburbs in New York region or Durham, for instance, who will be dependent on services like transit and no longer able to drive, but living in communities that are not rich in those kind of services. So, yeah, so coming into like a dense urban area, uh, if there were more investments in uh, in the proper kind of transit services, for instance, for, for people who are older, if sidewalk construction and snow clearing were oriented towards older populations, then it could be serving that population and taking a lot of pressure off other regions in southern Ontario at the same time, you know, as providing kind of a bolstering the economic basis of, uh, of downtown Hamilton. So that's a scenario in which a lot of different people win. Absolutely. And you mentioned transit, uh, and you write in the book a, a chapter about Hamilton, like a lot of major cities, has its uh, ongoing transit disputes. And you, you also mentioned the sort of split in a council between 
downtown councillors who uh, largely probably represent the more lower income uh, people and then the, the more wealthy suburban councillors and their constituents um, mm-hmm. scrapping for the, the fate of, uh, of Hamilton and, and, and the way you get around Hamilton. Can you, can you break down a, a little bit of that? I know it's an ongoing saga. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, it's been, it's been years and years that, uh, during a period of time when both upper levels of government, the province and the federal government uh, had committed to fully funding a, a light rapid transit service, it couldn't get past objections at, at city council. And that's largely a, a suburban, urban split. I mean, the advantages of, um, you know, not just building a light rail transit, but also having, you know, a, a better, more flexible and actually affordable transit system also, and a reliable transit system that reaches everywhere. I mean, this is integrally tied into the idea of, of building communities that also serve lower income people as well as people from from higher income levels because you know transit is that one expense i mean in order to get to work in order to get to school in order to get to daycare you need to be able to get around and if you're dealing with a situation where you're you're paying a lot of your available income on housing then the expense Say if you have to buy a car because the transit system is not good enough to be able to fulfill the obligations you have, then that could be an expense that's it's too much. It could be the difference between having opportunities and not having opportunities. So, you know, building a transit system that's not not only hooks up with a regional transit system you know, the GO train that goes from Hamilton to Toronto, but also that heads out into the older suburbs in the mountain and new places where there will be job opportunities, like in some of the outlying industrial parks. I mean, that's a really important component of building a system that works for people at different income levels. And especially now that, you know, people originally were looking at building more affordable housing in the downtown. Well, the downtown is now a coveted area that uh, people from Toronto have moved in and they see that um, until recently this was the case, that you could buy a, a detached house with a backyard in a, in a downtown setting close to all your amenities. As that's taken hold and a lot of people have moved in and snapped up all those properties, there's a lot less property available in the downtown core that looks suitable for building housing for people of various income levels that includes a low-income housing component. So more of that housing is going to be out in the suburbs and in the outer fringe. And, you know, there's no point in building that housing if people are going to be stuck there because they can't afford to get to work or get to school or get to get to daycare because there's not a reliable, frequent and affordable transit system. So transit, absolutely immense enormous part of that equation. So the housing crisis and gentrification, the, these are these are issues that probably most Canadian cities deal with at, at some point. That said, every city is different. So I'm wondering in, in the process of researching and writing this book, if you found sort of made in Hamilton solutions to these kind of things, and, and also what kind of timeline are we on to implement them? Um, well, about the timeline first, I mean, you know, as fast as possible, because right. there, there's, there's a real crisis here. Like, obviously, like when you, when you plan new communities, 
you plan for housing. Part of the national housing strategy is geared towards building affordable housing very quickly uh, within a very short time frame of a year or two. But for the most part, though, when you when you plan new communities and you know rental developments and affordable housing projects, like uh, groups like the Good Shepherd or the Indwell organization in Hamilton do, that's something that takes a number a number of years. But in terms of the um, what is it that's unique about Hamilton? Part of it is that you know there's been this sort of uh, residual blue collar union worker kind of ethic that survived in Hamilton and it's created you know the the conditions where a lot of organizations have have arisen that are really pioneers in in doing this kind of research about you know what measures can there be in place to make life better for people living on low incomes that can create a mixed community where there's you know cohesion and economic and social divisions are are lessened there's less poverty in the community everybody has equal opportunities to contribute uh, you know i'm thinking of organizations like the hamilton roundtable for the reduction of poverty which you know gathers people from all walks of life and it's come up with ideas that have since gained momentum in their communities for instance having subsidized bus passes for people who live on low incomes and and also just raised a lot of consciousness about how when you don't have sufficient funds, you know, your opportunities to to advance and create a full life for yourself are, are really reduced. And, you know, there's a lot of social housing organizations. I, I mentioned earlier Indwell, which has, you know, got a number of uh, projects underway now. And just recently, the Hamilton Spectator reported that they've spun off an organization, which is like a consultancy that uses the the expertise that they've acquired for planning and and building and operate communities that that offer um, housing at affordable rates. They've spun off this consultancy aimed at, you know, imparting that knowledge to other organizations so that, uh, you know, there'll be more community groups working on those kind of projects and hopefully maintaining a, a decent mix of housing in in downtown hamilton uh i mean the the other thing is i mean i and i've got some some flack for this from reviewers of shift change uh who have said that you know well maybe you know i put too much stock in the idea that there's a particular ethic it's passed on from you know as far ago as the as the landmark 1946 strike at stelco which led to you know unionization was a, a major moment in industrial history in Hamilton. So some people say, well, that's really overstated. You know, there's a lot of people who are unconcerned about, uh, you know, about there being a more equitable society in their city. They're, they're just as, uh, as self-focused as people anywhere. And, uh, you know, I mean, maybe that's true. But on the other hand, a lot of people told me that when they, uh, from organizations that, uh, that, that try to, you know, provide services for people who have been overlooked in the real estate rush, that they actually do get a lot of support from people in the community because there's still a lot of people around from that industrial era who know what it's like to go through layoffs, who know what it's like to experience a family member, you know, often a breadwinner suffering from an industrial disease 
and you know losing an income that way and and losing a family member that those sort of memories are are embedded in the community enough that uh you know that people when they see hardship they want to chip in and try to, to alleviate it so to whatever degree it is uh, maybe it's overstated in some cases but i think that that is a um a distinctive aspect of the of the culture in hamilton which differentiates it from probably a lot of other cities. Well, Stephen, it's a great read, and I want to thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me. Well, it's a pleasure, Glenn. Thank you very much for your interest. And uh, yeah, the the book may be of interest to people who are considering the move into Hamilton uh, from elsewhere, as as people do. And uh, also what you might want to consider if you move into into Hamilton is uh, getting involved with some of the organizations that are planning for a bright future for people across the social spectrum in the future. Absolutely. That sounds good. Great. Well, thank you, Glenn. Nice to chat with you. Nice to chat with you as well. Okay. Take care then. Finally, Spacing's latest issue is now available. The theme for this one is growth. The natural world teaches us lessons for living. Why talk about growth at a time of year when snow regularly covers the ground? Contributing editor Sarah Hood, who wrote the introduction to this issue, explains. Well, yeah, as a gardener myself, I know that uh, things are surprisingly active under the ground through the winter. And actually, I had a, a consulting job once at the Royal Botanical Gardens in Hamilton, and one of the gardeners there said that one of his own personal quests was to point out that we're really a 365-day gardening area because there are actually lots of things like euonymus and holly that you'll still see growing in people's gardens at this time of year, and the bulbs that we put in in the fall are doing all their work, and actually the holiday season is traditionally in Northern Europe a time for celebrating all the stuff that we've just finished growing over the course of the year. Mm -hmm. I can still harvest kale out of my little community garden plot. So, yeah, there there really isn't a time when growth isn't happening. And I think that goes for cities as well as for gardens. And and to your mind, what's so captivating about urban growth specifically? Gardening, plant life, parks in an urban setting? Well, there's there's two sides to it, really. One of them, I think, is that like any aspect of urban life, if you start to notice it, it enriches your life. So if you start to look at all the little things that are growing in everybody's front yard and even up from between the sidewalk cracks and in the parks, all of a sudden you become aware of this entire system of live things that some of which have been there for hundreds of years some of which are new introductions. If you look at the railway tracks, trains are traditionally a way that seeds get carried hundreds of miles because they'll blow up against the train car and then drop off again hundreds of miles later. So the more you notice, the more it just enriches your experience of the city life. But also, I think that gardening is an allegory for how cities grow. We have been, most of us, kind of sticking close to home through COVID. I know I'm in the East End and I can count, maybe not quite on the fingers of one hand, but probably of two, 
how many times I've been west of the Don Valley since COVID began. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's terrible. <laughs> so every time I do go um, back to a neighborhood that normally I would visit all the time, I realize, oh, they've just finished this high rise or, oh, they've taken down this old building or, oh, there's a completely different treatment of this park. And so like the bulbs under the ground in the winter, the city has continued to grow while we've been doing our sort of COVID hibernation. I know I write for a lot of construction magazines as well as for spacing. And there are some astonishing projects that are going on while we speak. And not just building is happening, but I think that everybody who lives in Toronto has been going through self-examination and growth as we've gone through COVID. So we're talking about street renaming, which was not really in the wind as much before COVID. We're talking about Indigenous placemaking. We're talking about new uses of streets and public spaces due to issues that have arisen because of COVID. So although we haven't been out as much in the same way, I think we've we've been through this COVID winter that's lasted two years so far. Mm -hmm. <laughs> we've been going through a period of growth, uh, even though it, it seems like dormancy. So I think I think it's a perfect time to bring out a growth issue, even though as I look out the window in front of me, there are no leaves on the trees and the uh, shrubs are brown and there's snow on the ground. I know that there's all kinds of stuff that's actually going on out of sight and that we're going to benefit from in a few months. On a previous episode, we we had my conversation with uh, Cheyenne Sundance, who's the farm director of the, the urban farm uh, Sundance Farms. That's included in, in this theme issue, but what, what are some other articles that people can look forward to in, in this theme? Well, I mentioned Indigenous placemaking, and the City Parks Department is actually going through quite an extensive process looking at the Toronto Islands, which have been since literally time immemorial, a place for Indigenous healing. And so there's an article by Joseph Wilson that talks about reimagining the Toronto Islands, not only in terms of Indigenous placemaking, but with a, a large aspect of that included in the way that they're going to be gradually rethinking the Toronto Islands. So I think that's quite interesting and really fits in with those ideas that I was just talking about. There's also Dylan Reed's fun article about a new bylaws that may perhaps make peace between the city and those people who like to garden in their front yards. We've heard many cases over the years of people who were doing native plant gardens in their front yard and had to contend with neighbors who said, well, we don't like those weeds. So I think this new bylaw will clarify things for people. And Dylan has done a good job of talking about all that. That kind of goes along with um, another thing that's not really part of the garden issue per se, but he also writes about the fact that the city has finally, after all these years, decided that it's going to be clearing snow from sidewalks. So we've had a couple of major flips in terms of city policy, and uh, I think that's definitely growth on uh, public space fronts in uh, well, actually both literally fronts because they're front yards and front mm -hmm. sidewalks. <laughs> and 
Jennifer Cole also talks about urban gardening and uh, boulevard gardening. So the boulevard gardening is planting in that little strip between the sidewalk and the street that exists on some streets. And lots of people have put very cheerful little gardens into those areas. And it was kind of a a gray area and a green space both at once. And so she talks about the benefits of that and it kind of relates to the front yard gardening story. And then um, Todd Irvine looks at the, the bigger picture of our trees and how they protect us and what they need from us to protect them. And that's such an important aspect of city life because we all know that when it's hot, we want a tree to to shade under and that trees affect our air quality and they relate to the use of water in the city and all kinds of other things. But uh, we don't often stop to look at them holistically. And Todd has been doing just that for so long. He really is an expert on the urban canopy. And so we've got obviously a piece by him talking about that. Well, there's so much to look forward to. I can't wait for people to get it in their hands. And I wanted to thank you for, for talking about this and uh, and wish you a Happy New Year. Thank you, Glenn, and you too. And I look forward to gradually seeing the unveiling of all of this growth, both in terms of uh, gardens we'll see in the spring and uh, in terms of how Toronto has been developing through our very peculiar couple of years. And uh, yes, Happy New Year to you, and thanks a lot. All the best, Sarah. Bye-bye. And that is the show. Thanks so much for listening. If you like this episode, please tell your favorite Hamiltonians, urban tulip farmers, and John Connor. If you have a moment, please share, subscribe, or give us a rating on iTunes as it will help us reach new listeners. I make this podcast with Neil Hinchley, who composes our music, and you can find that music on SoundCloud at Track82. That's all spelled out. If you have any questions, comments, concerns, or scoops, you can reach us on Twitter at Spacing Radio, that's all one word, or email me at glynbowerman at spacing.ca. That's G-L-Y-N-B-O-W-E-R-M-A-N at spacing.ca. Visit our website at spacing.ca or visit our city store at 401 Richmond Street West in Toronto. In the meantime, have a safe and happy new year. Cheers. Cheers.